Hello, I'm Natalie Alexander, and you're listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library in Geneva, where we aim to advance the conversation on multilateralism. And today's episode is a very special one. We're coming to you live from the library, as we have with us the science expedition leader, Paul Rose, for a storytelling event. Paul, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be here, the United Nations. feels great. We're so excited to have you. Many people know you already from your explorations and your television and radio broadcasts. And if they don't, they'll definitely know more after today's storytelling session. We'll also share some links and resources in the podcast description for anyone listening who's interested to know more. But could you share briefly before we head in, what inspired you to do the work that you do today? When I was 11, I was struggling to do school. I couldn't read very well, and I was having an enormous battle bumping along the bottom of academia, along with some terrible mates as well. We were, we were, we were that group in school. We were not good. And there's something in British education when you're 11. You have to take an examination. It's called the 11 plus, and it's where you're streamed into the A stream or the B stream very much. And quite obviously, I failed the 11 plus. Um, but at that same time, when I was struggling with all of that, my heroes were on television. And I remember sitting on my knees watching Jacques Cousteau. There he was on Calypso with his team of great divers diving all around the world with their red hats. But that seemed a bit remote, but exciting. It seemed hard to reach. And then there was Hans and Lottie Haas. And Hans was taking amazing black and white photographs underwater. We take this for granted today, beautiful films and photographs underwater. But he was coming up with these amazing shark, black and white. And when you look back on them, they're very grainy pictures of sharks. I still remember today the images of him and Lottie Haas sitting on a reef working out what picture to take next. And Lottie had this sort of big clipboard underwater. And they were the first people I'd seen living underwater. And then my life hero is a fictional character because these were real heroes and it was a fictional character, Mike Nelson. Mike Nelson was the star in a series called Sea Hunt, an American series, and it was played by Lloyd Bridges. And he was having proper testosterone-fueled adventures every week. He was rescuing pilots from crashed airplanes and miners from flooded mines. So uh, with no history of diving, with no family history of diving, not living anywhere near the sea, I thought, that's for me. And I just wanted to be a diver. And that propelled me from 11 to today. Wow. That's all I've ever wanted to be is a diver. And I became a commercial diver and off I went. Yeah. And now you have many, many uh, stories and explorations around the world, especially advocating for the environment and the Arctic. We'll soon be sharing your story and engagement more in detail after this. But what should people expect to hear? What do you really hope they'll learn? Well, for me, um, I benefit, as all explorers and all frontline scientists do, from having unique access to raw science data and experiences made in very powerful places at the end of the world's longest and most challenging supply chain. So that means that when I am on expedition, I think about climate change, or as an explorer, I come home and I think about pollution. Or when I'm back on an expedition and I think about the way communication has changed or overpopulation, then I come back to the expedition and I'm constantly aware of global issues. And I think I benefit, as all explorers do, from having a very unique perspective of very important global issues. So I'm hoping that the audience today share with me my unique perspective uh, and point of view 
and also uh, I'm hoping very much to let people know how optimistic I am for the future. We are in an incredible sweet spot of opportunity and that's my main message. How do you think all of this relates to multilateralism? Uh, this is our, our main uh, goal in the podcast, to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Why is it important to keep the conversation going, particularly in the issues and, and the challenges that you see? Exactly. I mean, my main project is National Geographic Pristine Seas, and we help establish large marine protected areas. Of course, you can't protect anything in nature unless there's multilateralism. You could never do it on your own, and you could never do it with a sort of bipartisan agreement with a next-door country, because the ocean is a big, wild, open space, and it needs proper multilateralism approach. The same thing on land. Any protection, any conservation issue, any measure to live on a healthy planet must have multilateralism as its core. Um, one small example, but very important example, is the Port State Measures Agreement. Up till a couple of years ago, it was impossible to prosecute fishing vessels because imagine, say, a Panama-registered ship with a mixed nation's crew on board um, traveling to British protected waters and then selling its fish in Valparaiso, Chile. It's such a complicated legal thing, you could never prosecute them. But now 62 countries, UN, have agreed to something called the Port State Measures Agreement two years ago, which means we can now prosecute those people, which is amazing. So thanks to multilateralism, um, particularly with conservation issues, during my lifetime, I'm going to see the end of illegal fishing. Who would have believed it? Wow. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. We will now leave the audience with the recording of the event. Hope you all enjoy and learn. Let's go. Great, thank you. I want to make the best use of this situation we're in today. We really are in a unique, sweet spot for big environmental changes. I really feel we've reached that point. I think we're going to see a new set of politicians, global leaders and influencers, and chairpeople of boards and teachers. I think we're going to find all these community and international influencers, all with a different set of values than what are demonstrated on the headlines today. I know that if you read the newspapers properly, you get a balanced view. But there are a lot of people who just read those headlines. And it worries me that we've then got a big society living with these aggressive, negative, horrible headlines. And that can't be good for society. There's no thinking that this is a healthy way to grow up. And I particularly think of the young ones, future generations, looking at those headlines and understanding and then maybe catching a little bit of the news and thinking, wow, you know, what's happening? We need to be thinking of that and set a high standard. So that's my goal, is to hope that you might join me um, at the end of this session to understand that this is a brilliant opportunity and we need to do everything we can in our sphere of influence and collectively to make the very best use of it. Um, and I know that we are lazy. We are, we are lazy people. We tend, we tend not to go to the gym until we find ourselves a little bit unfit or we don't train for events unless we've got uh, a medical coming up. And we, you know, we have this habit of being a bit lazy. It's probably a sort of survival instinct, I suppose. And it was demonstrated to me very clearly when I worked for BBC in Bangladesh. I was invited by Mohammed Yunus, the, the great microfinance expert, to be his guest for three weeks in Bangladesh, and I reported on it for BBC News. And there was all kinds of brilliant adventures to be had in Bangladesh with the great man. 
and I was reporting on it straightforward from, from deep wells that were full of arsenic to you know, all kinds of great ideas with social businesses and the fact that in some of the remote districts, rather than put medical care in first, you put communications care in first, so you can have micro-banking and all these other things. Learned a lot, but the main thing I learned was that I got a prompt from BBC that said, Bangladesh is the most densely populated country on Earth. There's an initiative in Bangladesh for it to really look at the birth rate, and they're challenging it very well, part of Muhammad Yunus's uh, initiative. So can you do a quick thing for television later today? So I looked at the numbers, and I thought the numbers can't possibly make sense, because it was, if you took all of the planet, or the whole population, and put them in the United States, not including Hawaii and Alaska, but in those 50 states, it wouldn't be anywhere near as dense as Bangladesh. And I thought, can't make sense. And I had about 20 minutes before I was on television. So I went into this public loo in Dhaka with a pen, and I was doing long division on my hand to work out you know, if it works or not. And it did. I, I, did try, I didn't want to say something that was obviously wrong. And because of that number and because of that sense that Muhammad Yunus and the other leaders had and the strong uh, women initiatives, they did overcome it. And now when you look at the population growth statistics, Bangladesh is completely well managed, much lower than, say, uh, UK for a start. You know? um, so it's a very clever. We do change exactly when we have to. And I feel now um, that we are starting to believe the data we get from the science field. It was a huge frustration for me to get into my profession, which is science support. I'm not a scientist, but I lead, I lead science support. So basically what that means for every single scientist in the field, there's about three support. It's approximately three to one. So you've got cooks and pilots and boat drivers and divers and climbers and dentists and people of all kind that need to keep things running. Um, so while I was in the field early days and we would get science data, it was a beautiful thing. I learnt, I'd only ever seen logbooks really, science logbooks in the Royal Geographical Society or in books or something. But to see a scientist sitting in really difficult, challenging conditions, freezing cold, anybody else, any sort of passing mountaineer or skier would definitely be out of the way. But that to get that data down, do those sketches, you know. And I've, my first Antarctic season, for instance, was we're in Mary Birdland, and it's a very complicated place to be, uh, untraveled mostly, and um, it's where, the, where NASA find the meteorites on the big ice fields. And we would go over here for three or four weeks, uh, skidoo journey, you know, take about 1,000 miles, then go over here for a shorter journey, maybe 500 miles, and then we would pull back to the middle so that my scientist could sit on the front of his skidoo with all of his clothes on and draw sketches as to why this ridge over on that range is like that and the same samples over here are like that because 65 million years ago during the Jurassic period when there were rivers running down here and trees and forests and dinosaurs, this is what it all happened and he would explain that and draw it out and then he would say the killer line, so Paul that means we need to go back to that range over there and you need to get on top of that thing and get me some of those black samples. And that's where I learned not only the beauty of science data, but scientists are impelled to work in places that you spend your lifetime trying to avoid. Um, so the beauty of that science we had then, and whether that's underwater, whether it's new species, whether it's new discoveries, whether it's 
enormous questions. We could never get it out because in those days we were using HF radio. When I was, when I was the first base commander at British Antarctic Survey at Rothera Base, I had to get my Morse code up to speed. We were using telex and every once in a blue moon we would get the satellite phone out. Certainly not in the field, but back at base and we would make maybe one phone call. It was a big deal if we made a phone call. It was especially a big deal if the thing rang and you knew it was headquarters in Cambridge. Um, so we had this frustration of finding this beautiful data, which I loved, coming on to new discoveries, which was an amazing thing, new species, you know, big questions, and yet not communicating it for months. And it would be six months later we'd be, we'd be back. And of course the world had moved on which is one of the great things you learn as, a, as an explorer, and you have to learn it early, is that life moves on. You go off, I go off and do my amazing life-changing things. Near-death experiences, amazing rewarding experiences. Changed man. When you come back, no one cares. Life's gone on. They've had babies. They've got married. All kind of, So no one actually cares. So if you're the world's greatest scientist with this most amazing discovery, you come back with something that was found six months ago, you've got to try and get it on the front page. There's no way. Amazingly frustrating. And that was a big eye-opener for me. But now we get instant reports, don't we? But the trouble with the instant reports is we can't control them. So you can be in the field, you can fire something up, and someone can publish it and go, whoa. You know, there's a scientist here that thinks it might be this, it might be that. What's the, what's the social media think of it? What, what's the sort of, you know, the wisdom of the masses look at this particular thing? So there's all this stuff going on, instant communication. Some of the instant communication is just about a personal adventure. It's an ego-driven sort of adventure. Some communication is really meaningful science stuff, but it all gets the same exposure. And that has meant that the last, say... 15, 20 years, we haven't had control of it, and it's been a bit manipulated. And that means that when you've got a big issue like climate change, which we can't, we can't feel and touch it much all the time, means that those numbers and those facts have been manipulated by people who have got their own interests and their own careers and their own finance and their own deals at heart, not by people who care about the planet. So... All of a sudden, that's been another thing that's been burning up in me. Is that, you know, this is crazy. We've now got access to this data, and I'll look at and I'll do this wonderful thing in the morning. Of, I used to wake up with a cup of tea, but now I wake up to news as what Trump's doing and any badly reported science, and I can feel everything sort of start waking up very quickly. But in the last, I'd say, five years, where the situation has become even clearer, and we've got more data, thanks to all the effort from the science front line, it's now being reported accurately. Now, of course, some of that is being reported accurately by Greta Thunberg. Some of that is being reported accurately by still old, hairy old scientists. Some of that is being reported by tourists who have seen things. Some of that is being reported as first-hand ground truth experiences. But we are slowly realising that these facts and this beautiful data is accurate. There was a brilliant moment when we had, we used to, I used to have to say that the um, climate scientists agree there's about 90 odd percent of them, but now it's 100%. So thank heavens for that, there's no gaps. And we're going to see very shortly that there's no escape for these um, 
manipulators of data and politicians who only care about their own agenda because people, more and more people, believe in the beautiful science data, which is accurate, you can't deny it. So that's one of the big drivers for change that we're going to see very, very shortly. So that's partly why I'm so optimistic. And I'll take a moment here to just talk about how I got going on this. Um, for me, I, I couldn't do school. I was one of, them, one of them boys at 11. I was in with all the, all, all the bad lads. My mates were, were a great bunch of mates. We were this fantastic clique. We weren't good at anything except being away from school, to be fair. Um, and in England, there's, there, there was a thing called the 11 plus. Um, well, quite inevitably, I failed my 11 plus. I couldn't do um, exams. But what I could do at the time was dream. Um, I was watching television. And three great heroes, well, two genuine heroes and a fictional one, were in their prime. You know, Jacques Cousteau was living on Calypso. His team with the red hats, I knew all their names. And, and it was an amazing thing they were doing. It looked glorious, the music, the sharks, the image. And it just blew me away, but it did feel a bit remote. But at the same time, Hans and Lottie Hass were on television. And Hans Hass was taking those incredible black and white shark images. Now, today, we look, if you look at those images, they look very grainy and staid, you know, whale sharks and all the rest. But they were underwater pictures, which was quite something, given that the camera's massive. And his partner, Lottie Hass, was his right-hand assistant. So I still remember the wonderful images of... Hans and Lottie Haas sitting on a reef planning the next pictures to take and they were underwater. She had a big wooden slate with all these codes tagged on it and little hooks as to what you put your little lead weights on as to what you're going to do next and he had the big camera down there using his ex-military rebreather gear and they were living underwater and they were the first people I saw actually working and living underwater but at the same time it was a very rich time was this wonderful television series called Sea Hunt. And it's a fictional character who leads that, Mike Nelson, uh, played by Lloyd Bridges. And he was popping up on these black and white series. That, you know, every week there was an episode. And he was having genuine testosterone-fueled um, underwater adventures. He was rescuing men from crashed airplanes and teams from flooded mines. And so I remember thinking, that's for me. That's all I wanted to do. It was the clearest message that I could get. I mean, I didn't have divers in the family, and I grew up in Romford, Essex, which is the east end of London. It's a, it's a long way from the coast. So there was no chance of re sort of becoming a diver, but I kept that in mind, and being a diver was all I had in mind, and any success I had after that was all about... Um, in those days, there was a, uh, an agreement between the teachers and the pupils because pupils like me were keen to escape and of course up to a certain point teachers were keen to get rid of us because I mean we were a disaster in the class so the agreement was once you passed something you could go so that meant um, I worked hard to pass something I managed um, to pass metalwork and it was a great thing I got my O level in metalwork which is an ordinary pass, by the way. And um, it meant I could escape. And ju just so you know, that, that remains my highest academic uh, credential uh, today. Um, so I could escape and I could become a diver. And then once I became a diver, I became a, an instructor and a commercial diver. I used the energy and the finance from that to become a mountain guide. And then I could turn that into traveling and exploring for my own life and bumped into people doing science support. 
And that's where science support came in. So the thing with being a non-scientist is that I can have a clear mind. I don't have to go down lots of caveats or data holes to explain something. And that then led the same thinking into the BBC work and other work. So you just sort of go from the boy, you know, dreaming about doing something, uh, being a diver, to how it all works and having a, um, the capacity, if you like, to take a complicated issue and turn it into something people understand. And that still remains today my greatest reward. When I meet scientists with a big idea, often it's an idea that's been developed in the laboratory or the meeting room. And it's often, you know, collaborative with lots of different organizations and groups and scientists all over the world. And when that idea comes to life, it's still just a set of equations or some thoughts or some gathered hypotheses. And I love to meet that science team and turn that hypothesis into icebreakers and ski-equipped airplanes and divers and climbers and camps and skidoos and you name it, whether it's a big camp or a small camp or a ship or whatever it might be, and see that thing come to life. And it's a living, beautiful thing. And I often write that to the team. I say, great, we're nearly there. We've done the admin. We've done that. The contract's assigned. We're on our way. It's about to be a living, beautiful thing. And each time I type that, I feel, yeah, it is. It's a big deal. That thing is alive, and I brought it alive. It's a wonderful thing. And that brings me then back to the data. Because we do that and we realize that the science only works if there's a long-term data set. You look at, say, the ozone hole. We established in the British Antarctic Survey a way of, a way of looking at the upper atmosphere in a pretty broad brush. And the idea during that time was we had these instruments that were looking up. And the idea was that we'd better find something that would act as a base. And we picked ozone because it never changes. And after about four years, everyone was scratching their heads, saying it makes no sense because it's all over the place and all these upper atmosphere numbers are all over the place. And then finally, uh, at British Antarctic Survey, uh, two great scientists worked out that it was the ozone that's changed. That wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had a 10-year data set. All the data sets about climate change that we see today and refer to for sea level rise, for, or, for, or for loss of habitat, loss of biodiversity, all these changes that we record the benefit of a long-term data set. So in my early days as a science support person, I learned the value of practical skills in science. That was the main thing. I learned the value and the beauty of data and how wonderful it is. And I still get that now when I go to my society, the Royal Geographical Society in London, and find these old logbooks and all these old notes. It's an amazing, wonderful thing. And then I learned how hard it can be to get that data out in the news. And then fairly recently, I've learned that it all gets manipulated because we can't control it. And all the people with the powers to manipulate our uh, things that we see on social media and in the news and read the headlines. And, and now we've got this beautiful moment come around where in the last five years, we're getting smart. And people are believing the field data. People are believing that, you know, absolutely trustworthy experiences. And there's no question. And... When I think about data, there's a thing going on as well as I'm telling you, reminding me of one of the best field scientists I've ever worked with in Antarctica was a classic field scientist because he was only there for the science. For the fact that air, air schedules and flights and regions and locations and skidoos and crevasses and the need to wear skis and all this stuff, 
every time we did something, I had to remind him. And bearing in mind, I've been in the field with this guy for 110 days. And every time I had to sort of tie his harness on again and say, come on, John, and get your skis on. And you know, it was always, because he, he wasn't clumsy, he just, it was just a tool for him. For me, it's my life. For him, it's just a tool. My job's keep him safe. Um, and we had um, a night um, in about uh, 200 miles from the South Pole. And a storm came uh, like no one's business. So realized we weren't going to go anywhere for a few days. Mostly when you have a storm in the polar regions, it's not so much noise or anything. You just get lots of blowing snow at first. And that means the visibility is down. There's certain crevasses, navigation needs. We had quite a bit of food and fuel so we could hunker down. So I got out the tent, you know, a big pyramid tent and anchored it all down extra good and brought in some extra food and all this sort of standard procedures. And the wind got worse. John started to gather all of his beautiful yellow logbooks, you know, the classic field logbooks. And I thought, good man, he's making sure that, you know, 100-odd days of work hasn't gone to pot. And he gathered all up his materials. And then the wind got rough, and he could feel me doing more stuff, and I was anchoring stuff in, and I was saying, I'm not sure how this is going to go, John, but here's what happens if the tent goes. Um, and then he started looking at photographs of his family, and I thought, wow, oh, good man, John, because I'm supposed to look after this guy. And then the wind really got to screaming. Just, you know, massive, powerful screaming. Un almost undescribable. And I thought, well, that's it, the tent's going. And it got cold. And John was rum rummaging around, and I kept looking to make sure it was all right. And he got out his collection of motorcycle pictures. And they were all pictures of his motorbikes. So I got to realize that, you know, when the chips are down, uh, what you really care about might be your motorbike collection, not necessarily the science data. So for me, the science data drives my life. It's, it's a truth. And I feel, from an explorer's perspective, that that's the kind of thing that will inspire the next generation and our future leaders to make some changes. I think we've got to get them there. We can get them there vicariously on, online. But the danger with the online stuff is it's so good it feels as if you've been there because you haven't. Um, we can get them there vicariously through science reports and beautiful films and all that. We can get them there by a sense of decision making. You know, inspirational leaders who are doing the right thing can sort of carry you with them and you think, oh yeah, you know. But we've got a big number of leaders at the moment who are absolutely opposite. Um, so we need to get people there. And I think the way to do that is that during our education, which at the moment, but certainly in Britain and for big lumps of Europe, is really sort of fit for the Industrial Revolution. You learn something so you can come out and get a job. We don't really set the values. We don't set the values of nature. We don't have like a nature-first sense. We don't, not many schools and young ones go out and learn science or mathematics or history outside. Not many of them do it out while they're having you know, experiential learning experiences that are challenging and little adventures. And I think that's all going to happen. I work with a group called Council for Learning Outside the Classroom, which is one of the big advisory councils of the UK government. And they're doing a lot for it. But it seems crazy. I mean, my grandfather would have laughed if I'd have said, you know what, we're actually teaching teachers the value of learning something outside the classroom. You know, and we're doing it and it's happening, but it's just amazing. So I think one of the things we can do is look at getting influential people out. And the way to do that is to encourage people to be informed travelers. There's a lot of press at the moment about, say, flying. And I get it, I fly all the time. And of course, there's one option, 
about it if we consider the environment and our personal actions, we could say, well, I'm not going to fly much. And sort of use the hair shirt approach to environmentalism. No matter what, I'm not going to fly. But given that flying um, CO2 is only a couple of percent of the total CO2, if you travel as an informed traveller, meaning that you understand where you're going, you do your research before you travel, even if you go to Mallorca on holiday, I'd like to see the day when we really look at where we're going, do a bit of background, think about it, look at a bit of history. If you're an artist, look at the artist. If you're a politician, look at the humanities section, how it fits in. Then go off and have your great holiday in Mallorca and you know, dive and climb and ski and all the things that you would do in Mallorca. Um, and then when you come back, realize that you've been given a bit of a gift and you've got a responsibility. And that responsibility is to report on or influence your sphere of influence with what's just happened to you. And it might be that you've seen a really clever bottle recycling scheme in Mallorca. It might be you've seen a tiny marine protected area that works beautifully. And that helped you understand these big marine protected areas by seeing how this community run the small one. It could be countless other things. And I think then you come back with that genuine sense of personal responsibility. And at the other end of the scale, we should all work really hard to get current political leaders and influences and future ones into the front line. I think I've seen that change. I've seen people come to Antarctica, either as tourists or as guests on science projects, have that experience of working with these brilliant scientists and my team and feel it, come back, and I just know that when they're next standing in the boardroom, her decisions are going to be that instead of that. And that's an enormous success. And if we had that going universally as part of the process, we would change the way we react to the things we're seeing today on the UN, the, the, the Cryogenic and Ocean Report, and all these things we've just seen, the big burst just recently. People would react to it differently. It wouldn't just be a headline that somehow um, Trump has turned around or a headline that the Brexiteers have turned around. We wouldn't feel manipulated. We would go, this works. And I think along with that, we can get a change in values. Um, I sound like a dreamer here, but I was a dreamer when I was 11, trying to be a diver. Um, and this thing, when, when we look at values, when I vote electronically, or in my village of Windermere in, in the Lake District, when I vote on the card, it just has people's names and their party. I think it should be mandatory that it explains their values. So it says, Joe Smith. And the number one value of Joe Smith is uh, humanitarian work, artist, communicate this stuff, runs uh, uh, Royal Geographical Society, da, 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 and encourages this and these values. Where are his investments? Oh, ESG investing. His pension is in there. Uh, who, who has his mortgage? Ah, oh, it's this mortgage company there. And you go, well, good set of values. And then you compare it to the next one. And you just discuss people's values. So I see that as a whole turnaround from an explorer's perspective as to how we get people to believe in science data, how we get to take action against things that we can already see and feel that action making a difference, and how we can influence people to become proper, genuine global leaders with our interests at heart rather than personal gain. So that's my take on, on where we are today and from the unique perspective of um, being an explorer. And I, you know, I invite your difficult questions and comments or even advice if you've got some. Thanks very much. Thank you. Every, evidently, it was a bit more than what we just asked for the store. You know, it was also a lot of ideas for what all of us could do, I guess, to, uh, you know, to start climate action. And I'm sure there are a lot of questions.
I have one in the meantime. Actually, it was about the, um, the Climate Action Summit. It's all about the first actions to be taken. From mm -hmm. everything that you've heard and from your experience and what you've seen, what do you think would be the most urgent action, actually? Excellent. I think the most urgent action would be for people to read properly. Because I keep meeting people who read the headlines. And, I mean, that's a great headline. I saw the one today. You know, you've, it's a great one because you've got the cryosphere and the oceans, you know, very close to my heart and bringing it home to people. But there is this horrible danger of bouncing around the headlines. And I think it dilutes and cheapens the message. So I really do encourage people, and I'm sure you'll do it, but you've really got to read this stuff. Um, you know, read what it's, see the headline, go down it, and then force yourself to read the opposite view. There is this thing that we can do these days, can't we, online, where you only read the news that's in your groove, uh, which is dangerous business. It reinforces everything, hardens up your position. And I think the first thing we should do is read. And then once we've read and we've got an informed, meaningful opinion, maybe beyond what we have just at this moment, is to look at people's sphere of influence. Because we've all got an incredible sphere of influence when you think about it. Your, your neighbour, your, your children's teacher, your boss, the people you work with, the politicians that you are, the people on your committee, the people in your community. And if we really put it in the front of our minds to influence that community with what we just figured out. You sit there having a cup of tea with your, with your mates and you say, you know, I just read this report. And it says this, and it says that, and it says that, and it says the consulting actuaries are looking at a four-degree rise. What's this, you know, can anyone make out what that's going to mean to us locally? Then you might just get a debate or say, yeah, and I saw this thing, these, these Arctic historical buildings are being washed away. You know, and it's all these other discuss discussions that come around it. And that will lead to sensible, I think, example setting. I think if you do your sphere of influence discussion, and then think, right, what can I do to set a good example? And that example might be to really concentrate on your transport side of things, because it's something you can change. There's no good thinking about something you can't even change, something you actually change. Maybe insulate your, your home a bit better, you know, maybe cycle a bit more, maybe look at the, the way you're using single-use plastics, all these things that have an effect, a positive effect on our lives. So it's read everything and then organise your sphere of influence. And I've had a good comeback on the sphere of influence thing, you know, from people who said, well, I don't really know anybody. I work as a security guard, and I've got a bunch of mates that, you know, start drinking beer early in the morning, and another bunch of mates that are uh, driving trucks and stuff. And yet I've met them at the Royal Geographical Society and said, you know what? It's working. So you can... And then what that does, not only does it begin to make a difference in society, but it makes your own life a better standard. Because when we see climate change, it seems a bit nebulous, it's out there, and we, it means that the politicians use that as a gap. But when we see plastic on beaches, so when we're on beaches in anywhere we work and we see plastic, a lot of that is driven by ocean currents, a lot of that is driven by local behaviour, a lot of that is driven by upriver. There's something we can do about that plastic. We can do what Afro Shah does in Mumbai, and he turned his life around from being a lawyer to cleaning that beach. He just cleaned that beach, and that's what he does. He cleans that flipping beach. And it makes an enormous difference, because now when you see the pictures, not only is it a different-looking beach, and families are playing cricket on there on a Sunday, but the turtles have come back. So he's this one single man, by cleaning the beach, has made an enormous difference. I read this thing about Paris uh, getting the name, you know, uh, Paris Poubelle because they've got, they're finding too much rubbish hanging around in Paris. It's because there's, there's habits that have, have gone on unchanged. 
And while they were interviewing people, that I've forgotten who it was, the Guardian News, uh, he unwrapped a, a cigarette packet and just threw the plastic on the ground and kept walking. Well, it won't be long before it becomes the social norm to not do that. It's a bit like, you know, you would be amazed if I sort of lit a cigarette right now. It's not the social norm to do it. So as well as taking on personal behaviours, like what do we do with plastic? What do we do about the way we drive? Let's get a blimmin' e-car. You know, let's look at all the things that we can do about where our food comes from. Let's really be super careful when we understand, when we read things and do things, and take all those direct actions, that it makes a difference. We have to know that it makes a difference. It certainly has a difference to our personal lives. And of course, with accurate reporting, sorry to go back to reporting, will demonstrate that it changes everything on the way. And that releases a new form of human energy. You know, just imagine if, if you felt that everything you did is having a direct effect compared to the taxi driver who's having stuff done to him and he hates it. What a difference that's going to be. Every single, you don't have to be, you know, take it on as a religious sort of credo, but the fact that every single action you take is making a difference positively to the environment. I think we'd see a different society. And I believe that's well within the capacity of uh, my life. Thank you, Igor. I would like to build a little bit on the previous question. Great. Um, because I have the feeling that many of the debates in, this, in the normal uh, sphere are nowadays not based on science and on facts, but on emotions, right? Yes. So in many cases, even have, if you have the best science and the best data, people would just neglect that and say, no, I don't believe in that, so mm -hmm. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. What would you give us as advice in terms of um, leading discussions or engaging with people who are like that mm -hmm. and also in terms of storytelling if we want to bring in our experiences to yeah to overcome that issue well I'd get get stuck into something that you believe in that you care about and have some early success that's what Afro Shah did you know he was a lawyer successful relatively young lawyer in mid-30s in Mumbai and he was looking at this beach, which was, you know, a terrible thing to clean up. And obviously, you know, at first glance, impossible, because it's still coming down the river and it's coming in from overseas and all that. Plus, a lot of the daily waste was from up the hill a bit, where there, there are no toilets. And the way that you go to, to defecate is you do it in a plastic bag, and then whoever goes down the hill next goes through the village and chuck it on the beach, you see. So a lot of this waste was really terrible stuff. And he just started to clean it. And he figured one day a week he would do it. And then inevitably he got some help, some mates. As you say, he started working in his community. And then that led to a couple of days a week. Now he's pretty much full time. Turned this into a big ocean initiative. And I say they're playing cricket and the turtles have come back. So you've got to find a success that you can grab. And I'd say do it a lot quicker than Afros Shah. So it might be that your local region or your office doesn't have a clear way of working out what it's doing with uh, buying plastic cups or recycling plastic cups or buying the right kind of food so it doesn't come in a styrofoam box or buying food that is ethically produced or buying food that is organic or whatever the issue might be that you've got a quick grip on and change it. Dead easy. And people react to that. You know, if you look at the whole global scale and this whole amorphous thing going out there, you go, what's different? But that means something to me. Are there any more questions right now? If... Paul, in the course of your lifetime, you've seen 
you know, from 1972 in Stockholm right up to today, no end of summits, conferences, conventions, commitments, and yet when we look at the science, IPCC, IPBS, we're going backwards. Yeah. So on climate and on biodiversity, right? So it seems that the more the events, the more we tend to go backwards. Yeah. What gives you the confidence to say, as you do, um, that you think we're about to turn a corner? What are yeah. you seeing that makes you think, now, this time around, we're going to nail it? Brilliant. Well, I remember um, Copenhagen. And I remember being with Jeff Severinghouse on the Taylor Glacier in Antarctica. And we'd set up um, a plan that there would be calls to the field so that uh, meeting the at Copenhagen journalists and influencers, big people could call people at the front end of climate change as to make a big difference. And it was a complicated thing to set up because it was a complex expedition on the Taylor Glacier. We had a very ambitious work program, so it meant taking time out to be around for these clever phone calls. And as you know, uh, Iridium phones, if you, you can't afford to leave them on in the field because they go flat. You've got to, so you've got to keep calling people at set times to see if they're ready for the call. So for three days, our beautiful project was overrun by trying to time this phone call. And Jeff Severinghouse, who's one of the most brilliant climate scientists ever, recognised as in the top three or four of the year, didn't get one phone call. Not one flipping phone call. I was just absolutely... I, was just, I couldn't believe that there was that lack of interest in calling someone at the front line. Well, obviously, that's turned around a bit now, but you're dead right. We don't need any more conferences and forums, and or we need some action. And I'm beginning to feel now that it's gone over the tipping point, and we've got to change. We've seen how bad it can get. You know, we've, we've, we've got people like Trump, you know, whose who's multilateralism. Two days ago, Trump said, we need, uh, it, it, we need uh, patriots. Uh, you know, our true heroes are patriots, not globalists, he said. You know, we need, we need, and all this kind of stuff going on. And the reduction he's doing with EPA and all this kind of uh, anti-sort of conservation issues. And we've, as a Brit, I've just lived through the whole Brexit, I'm still living through the whole Brexit disaster, where I suddenly discovered, I mean, I'm not naive, but I had that sudden feeling just, just when we watched that documentary about how we'd all been manipulated and how that, you know, People can target groups of people and individuals based on my Googling and, you know, uh, online history and my region, and certain words and certain key things will move me a bit this way to vote a certain way or act a certain way. And, of course, that happens in the States, and I realise it's happening all over, and I hadn't understood that was the case. And now I feel that we've got such an awareness of that kind of thing going on such a reaction to Greta Thunberg and all of these young people pushing, pushing, and pushing to make something happen. And they're all going to be voters very shortly. You know, any politician is now looking in the mirror thinking, holy smokes, I better say something or do something, because in a couple of years they're all going to flip in vote. Um, and I'm out. So even if they don't believe in it or don't want to change it, they've got to do something because they're going to be voted. So I reckon we've reached that crisis point. We've reached the Bangladesh moment with Paul Rose in the toilet writing his numbers on his hands that we're going to change. So um, I am optimistic um, that we're going to get there. And I think it's because we've reached that crisis point. We've got there. And I hear exactly what you're saying all over the world. And people are saying that they're frustrated. We don't need more meetings. Let's talk about smash. And I think, I do, John, I really think we're going to get it. I think in this next 12 months or so, things are going to change. So 
Oh, thanks a lot. I think that's actually ending on a positive point for something that's a very difficult and complicated issue for us. Thanks so much, Paul, for all these stories. Thank thanks, Logan. <laughs> thanks to all of you. Thanks very much. Thank you.